I was finally in a place that made sense to me. It was safe, it was, it was beautiful, it was integrated in nature. It was all these people working towards a similar thing in different ways, right? But they were looking to grow themselves, to touch into something real and connected. It changed my life, it expanded my understanding about so many different topics I didn't know about and, and it just gave me an experience of love. And it was like living in a house of mirrors that was reflecting your better self. Coming up on The Janice Adams Show, psychologist, author, Dr. Peggy Fitzsimmons on life, work, Oprah Winfrey, Maria Shriver, Sunday paper, the Omega Institute, and creating a clutter-free, soul-driven life. First, the news. Welcome to the Janice Adams Show. I'm here with my guest, Peggy Fitzsimmons. She is the author of a new book, Release, Create a Clutter-Free and Soul-Driven Life. From your opening lines, you say, when I tell someone that I declutter for a living, they invariably say, oh, I need that. And then you go on to say, but at some point, they wistfully say how great it would be to get rid of everything, including their family, and move to a small cottage at the beach with their dog. (laughs) (laughs) And you then say that that conversation then goes to the next level. And they will say, like a deep secret, I just don't feel connected to anything, you know, spiritual. And you say you feel their longing to release the clutter in their lives and come home to themselves. Since you picked up this book, you then go on, you're hearing the call. Don't worry, you're not crazy. You're just waking up. Peggy, tell us about ourselves. Well, I'm learning about myself as I uh, wrote this book, that's for sure, because, you know, we are all buried in clutter, all forms of it, physical clutter, you can look around your house right now or the room you're in. Um, But we also have also have mental clutter, emotional clutter, energetic clutter, relationship clutter. And in my view, and the way I've written the book is that all forms of clutter represent us as souls not being true to ourselves because we have two aspects within us. We have a soul and an ego aspect and our souls are free. Our souls are unattached. Our souls understand we're here temporarily. We're here to love, we're here to serve, but our egos have different ideas about things. You know, the ego is about, it's about me and it's about being separate and it's about success and survival and self-preservation. And it's about the image I portray and it's about how much I have and how much I accumulate. Whoever has the most toys wins, right? It's not interested in the same things as the soul. So we all have these two aspects perpetually forever. And we have to come to peace with understanding that and then be able to make more choices about who's gonna be at the wheel of our lives. Your training is as a psychologist. You have a PhD in psychology. Did you think that this is what you were going to be speaking about from that training? I think this has just been an evolution of my own choices in life and how I've decided to live. In the early part of my life, I was very achievement-based. You know, I was a National Honor Society, college basketball scholarship, class president, you know, on and on and on. But something about all that didn't really feel right. You know, I got a PhD, so that's a a lot about, you know, achievement. and, and, And of course, wanting to help people was part of that. But then I made some very conscious choices that I was gonna look for experiences in life. I was gonna go towards experiences and um, rather than status, I guess. And, um, and that kind of framework informed a lot of the choices I've made. Um, I've been in a lot of different places in the, in the material realms and the spiritual realms because of that decision. You've raised that word spiritual, and I wanted to ask you to clarify that 
at the very start. Some people hear the word spiritual and they think religious. Some people hear the word spiritual and because they think religious, they turn away from the word spiritual. What do you mean when you say spiritual and the spirit world? I think that we are in this world, but we're not of it. I think we're born from a bigger, bigger place. And spirituality to me is accessing the essence of who we really are, which are loving beings. You know, we are human beings. Mm -hmm. And I think the emphasis there matters. And I think that all religions, all ways of approaching spirituality kind of have the same message in their deepest core, right? Be kind, be loving, share, you know? Mm -hmm. Trust, trust the earth, trust the divine timing of things. You know, all these, all these principles are ever present, but I think our egos can get a hold of certain religions and turn them into weapons, right? Yes. Reasons to persecute people, enslave people, you know, on and on and on. But I don't think that's at the true essence of, of any message. So to me, spirituality is just being in touch with the essence within, the place where we feel peaceful and present and calm and trusting and accepting and loving. That to me is what spirituality is. Many people will say, well, well, I am a very spiritual person. And then the question becomes, but then if you are, if we are, then why do we feel the way we feel? Why mm. do we feel the way we feel? What feeling are you referring to? I mean, in keeping with the theme of your book, but even if I hadn't read your book and been honing in on that, I would look at where our society is right now. And I think our society is in a very desperate place, um, a very unsettled place. When the pandemic first began, I would joke and say it's as though Mother Nature sent us all to our room and said, look, I've had it with you folks. Time out. <laughs> Time out. You know, don't come out until I call you. Just stay in that room. And then you heard that that the the environment that um, that smog was actually leaving certain places, and that you know there was the breathing space, but we couldn't go out into that cleaned up breathing space because what we would do with that cleaned up space. And then to go right for it, we ended up with denying other people the right to breathe as our solution to where we were. So it's, it's all, that's the, the question. Why are we so many of us, too many of us, and this is, some of us are feeling one way, one way politically, and will think that I'm talking about the politics and, and condemning the politics. And frankly, I do condemn certain politics. And my question is, why don't you? But that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about right now is what leads us to express ourselves in the way that we are that ends up being so damaging to ourselves and to others. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's about being over-identified with the ego and we're seeing that like this time to me is, is the birth canal of a new consciousness. I mean, and it is a, it's a brutal trip down that birth canal, you know, <laughs> and for women who have given birth, they would know what I'm speaking of. I have never given birth, by the way, so I don't fully know, but that's how I see it. I have. I have twin daughters. Oh, I'm a twin. Oh, you are? <laughs> I am, yes. Oh, my goodness. We will we'll have to start that conversation, too. <laughs> I mean, whenever the word twin is raised, it's amazing. Mothers of twins go crazy and fathers <laughs> of twins, too, and start talking about, you know, twin life. And then other people look at us and say, oh, come on, would they get past this twin thing? But you can't. You cannot. Because what I have learned about being the mother of twins, being the granddaughter of an identical twin and the granddaughter of a grandmother who gave 
birth to twins, both of whom died. Wow. And as the grandmother now myself of two children that I have seen be born, um, been in the room where it happened, um, <laughs> you know, it, that process of giving birth is really quite an analogy for what you're talking about with all of it, with the, with the beauty of what happens, but with the traumatic experience of how it happens. Absolutely. And I think that's what's happening now. We are all the things that are happening, systems are breaking down. People are seeing things more clearly, um, economic systems, racial systems, you know, all the inherent isms, <laughs> you know, they're, they're being shown differently and there's backlash, right? There's the ego identified. No, 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 that's not, you know, that's not true. People who want to not have harmony, equality, not live from a soul perspective where everybody you know, my, my idea of the soul perspective is I am enough, you are enough, and there is enough, you know, and, and say that the, again. I love that. Yeah, it's I the soul knows that I am enough, you are enough, and there is enough. The ego operates from I am not enough, you are not enough, and there is not enough. Mm-hmm. And when you look at all the disparities across everything, primarily economic, racial etc. But it, it all stems from this self-preservation, this hoarding, right? I have to have mine. I have to have more than I need. I can't see you over there that doesn't have enough. You know, I have to have a million. No, I have to have a hundred million. No, I have to have a billion. Then I'll feel secure, you know, and then people can't eat and people can't pay rent and they can't pay their medical debt. I mean, it's, it's insane. And I think that this time, is another illumination, painful as it is, of, of all these disparities and all this over-identified ego living. That's just how I'm framing it. I'm not saying yeah. I'm right, Janice. This is just how I'm, that, this is how I hold it. This is how I see it. Uh-huh. And, and I think it's, it's something to consider, you know? Considering it, I would ask the question, is this our American point of view? Is this a global point of view? How do we address countries that don't have the wealth that we have, that are going through the same pandemic that we're going through? And now we find, as the headlines are coming out, as we are getting shots in arm here in this country, um, and some people have the luxury of saying, oh, no, 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 I don't think I want that, that there are other countries that definitely want that. And it is breaking out along the old colonial lines. Let's be honest. Let's stop this nonsense about wealthy countries and not wealthy countries. There's a reason some countries are wealthy and not, and others not wealthy. And it does follow the old colonialism fault lines as to which countries have, are being allowed to get healed with the vaccine and which are not. So if we look at that kind of disparity, then are those people also saying, I mean, maybe they are enough in their soul space, but between the forces of nature and the forces of human nature, they're not having enough, you know, and then there are those countries that are going through the, um, as we are, but to to more disturbing degree, this, the climate issues that are raising the question of what is enough. I mean, a lot of this comes down to the there is enough, there is not enough, right? Because if, for instance, with the vaccines, as an example, the wealthier countries, colonial countries, whatever you want to call them, hoarded right? We're going to get our people first, then we'll think about other places. So to me, a lot of it is that same, you know, the environment, all of it is like more, you know, we need more, we have to serve ourselves first, we, we have to, 
you know, draw the lines around us and our group, whatever that is, if it's the United yeah. States, if it's all the people in California, you know, people are buying vaccines people in early in the, in the time when they first were rolling out. Mm -hmm. And I heard stories of people getting priority because they're connected to someone who knows someone and they're paying money and, you know, and then you've got older people, people of different situations that really needed those vaccines. Like how, how would someone do that? Right? Like how would someone make that kind of a selfish choice? I remember during the earliest days of the pandemic, when that nonsensical conversation was coming from the White House about the drug hydroxychloroquine, which we later found out that the person saying it had investments in, a friend of mine who'd been taking that drug for years for lupus was down to a week's supply and calling all over the country trying to legitimately get the drug that her life depended upon for its primary use. And it was a terrifying time. She was a, my best friend. We talk all the time, but I didn't know that she was in that predicament. And when I did hear how we got her the drug was that I live in a small town. I went to the pharmacist in a small town, prevailed upon him because you do have that one-to-one -one relationship and asked him if he would provide it. And on that basis, he said yes. And that's how we got it. And that's what was happening. People's lives were being endangered by that. I think that's happening every day. It's happening with other medicines, you know, companies are charging exorbitant amounts for people to have what they need to make profit, right? To, to yeah. win. To, I mean, it's everywhere. And I think what you just said about the relational piece, you know, that relationship you had with that pharmacist in that small town, he could see you, he could see your need, he could respond or she, I don't know. See it, was, it was a he, yes. It was a he. The but, person. The person, right? And, and that, that's, that's a moment of soul, you know, to me. That's a moment of soul connection. It's like, oh, I know you and you have a friend who needs this and I can provide that. Well, of course, you know, yes. so that, that's, that's, what, that's where it has to go. I mean, we have to come out of this time more willing to see each other, to look at each other, to help each other, to share our resources, to, to release this ego-identified functioning that keeps us with the clutter accumulating and feeling separate and not, not connecting where we can. I'm, it's just, it's stunning. It's staggering. You really think about it. When we come back, more with our guest, Peggy Fitzsimmons, author of the new book, Release, Create a Clutter-Free and Soul-Driven Life. More here on The Janice Adams Show after the break. Here on the Janice Adams Show with my guest, Peggy Fitzsimmons. She holds a PhD in counseling psychology from Arizona State University. She's worked in the fields of counseling and healing for over 25 years and is trained clinically in holistic and mind-body approaches. She's the author of the new book, Release. I love that title. Release. Create a clutter-free and soul-driven life. Would you read to us from the book? Sure, I would love to. I, um, I'm in the introduction right now and people have responded to this passage, so I'll, I'll read this short one here, okay? We all live with clutter. Most of us are buried in stuff that isn't essential to our lives and definitely isn't in alignment with who we are spiritually. Physical clutter is the most obvious but we're also burdened by mental, emotional, energetic, and relationship clutter. Hoarding has become a dirty word, but it simply means amassing things for preservation or future use. This is what we do. We accumulate inner and outer things that we think serve us, and we hold on for dear life. I hate to break the news to you, but we're all hoarders. 
Hoarding is like taking a deep breath, then holding it and holding it and holding it, refusing to exhale. If we won't let go, we stop the natural flow of taking in what we need right now and releasing what we don't. If we won't let go, we can't share our resources with those that need them. Think of the plants that depend on our exhale for life-giving carbon dioxide. And if we won't let go, we can't make space for new breath. I love that. I love that. I kind of do too. I yep. kind of look at it, I said, did I write this book? I don't remember writing this. <laughs> Sometimes you get into the zone of writing and it feels like you're taking dictation, right? <laughs> but it is lived experience and your journey as, as a psychologist. And, and I, I could use words like as a healer, as a spiritual person, but I think I want to say as a listener. I like that a lot better. I, I, my life has been about being with, being with people. Yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, it's, I'm not interested in being a teacher or I'm, I'm interested in being a liver, you know, so everything in this book, I deal with every single day, you know, in, within myself. I was taken with those words. Hoarding is like taking a deep breath, then holding it and holding it and holding it, refusing to exhale. And then you skip down, and if we don't let go, we can't make space for new breath. And because of my living experience right now, not just, even though that is big enough with the murder of George Floyd right before our eyes with that nine minute and 29 second video, but with the fact that 45 people, more than 45 people were killed in the 15, by police in the 15 day span of that trial, 45 Americans lost their lives, unarmed people. And then you go on to thinking about the George Floyds and the Eric Garners and the number of other people who said, I can't breathe and then died. Mm -hmm. um, and I just am struck by that idea that breath is so vital to everything. You say we stop the natural flow of taking in what we need right now and releasing what we don't. And I keep saying, well then, what kind of clutter is in the minds of people who would take breath away from someone else? The worst of the ego identified thinking that would lead you to even be able to harm someone else physically, physically. harm someone else verbally, to harm someone else mentally, right? We all have that capacity. We all have levels of how we're identified. But I think in those situations, George Floyd primarily speaking of right now, the ego identified moment was there for all to see. And it cost him his life. It took his life. Well, it took his life. It took his yeah, life from, that's true. from yes. him. You know, you... But, it, but, but I will say this. Mm -hmm. It has opened up new breath in the world, new understanding, new seeing, new demands for something different, people shifting their mindsets, people moving towards love and harmony, collaboration and seeing each other. So it took his life, and I apologize for saying it cost him his life because that was wrong. And it took his life and it gave life to something big. And so that, that is the only thing I can find from this that I go, okay, it's a bigger picture operating here. I think so much of that little girl, his young daughter left behind and how somehow, thanks to her mother, thanks to those around her, and thanks to a new president who knows 
just as a human being, forget his job, forget his title. He knows what it means to lose somebody. And he's lost more than one somebody. For him to then reinforce that statement, my daddy changed the world. I'm struck by that when you refer to the life that George Floyd's death has given Mm -hmm. and the life that that statement is going to give to a little girl who otherwise could have been totally steamrolled forever. And she's just, she's a baby. That's right. She's a baby, you know? So thank you for pointing that part out. In the introduction to your book, you go on to say, yet we all have another aspect that fights for the wheel fights against the love, but fights for the wheel. And you say it's called the ego. Would you read that section for us, please? Yes. Yet we all have another aspect that fights for the wheel called the ego. Think of the ego as our psyche, our personality, our sense of self. It's the image we construct of ourselves, the beliefs, needs, roles, and possessions we identify with and show to the world. The ego is concerned with self-preservation, It competes for everything to ensure our safety, success, and survival. It knows conflict and lack and experiences fear, insecurity, loneliness, and anger. It sees us as separate from all other beings and even from the earth itself. The ego is the human aspect of us. It's the false self that we mistake for our true self. It is the driver of our lives more than we know. Peggy, so in practical everyday life terms, if that is the driver, what's the alternative? If we're so dominated by this, I mean, is it that we have no choice? No, I think we, we, we have no awareness. I think we are being driven by an aspect of ourselves that we're not even aware is at the wheel and it's happening internally within each of us and it's happening collectively in society because everything is based on more, 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 accumulate, 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 grab, hold on, hoard, have, right? It's all driven by that. I'm not enough. You're not enough. There's not enough. I mean, this is the mindset that's running people. And, and until we begin to wake up, which to me, that's what waking up is about, is about understanding that we're more than just our ego minds. We are souls in human bodies here temporarily to serve our love to the world. And that is the priority. Anything else is folly. How many cars you have, how big of a house you have, none of it really matters. The end of the day, what matters is connection, love, family, service, So I think we get confused. When we speak, it's so easy to say, well, you know, you're saying that because we're here in the United States, you're an American, but where else in the world have you traveled? Oh, I've been to a lot of places. Um, Been to Europe, been to Africa, been to India. But I think there's different forms of suffering everywhere. You know, here in our country, there's a lot of mental suffering because we're in this I'm not enough, you're not enough, trying to be somebody, trying to have status, these kinds of things. I think it's different in different countries. And, and I think you're right. I mean, I, I was doing a podcast recently with a woman who's based in China, and she was talking about how the American values of materialism have really come into China in such a way that, you know, people are just obsessed with consuming and buying and purchasing and and she said, well, is that wrong? Like, is it wrong to want nice things? Or, you know, and I said, no, it's not, it's not wrong at all. It's just that when that becomes the priority over love, over serving people, then people's minds are gone. You know, we're literally out of our minds, I think. How do we address, though, if we don't have consumerism in that sense, since what you're consuming 
is usually someone else's means to earning a living. <laughs> How do we then cross that part of it? You're not talking la la land, pie in the sky. You're talking something very concrete. How do we deal with that? The person who is accumulating maybe even hoarding in the bad sense rather than in the sense that you've said that we are all hoarders in, mm -hmm. in the non-pejorative sense. Um, how does the fact that we what we're consuming really affect someone else's ability to earn a living and that if we don't consume, where are we endangering other people's lives? Hmm. That's an interesting question. I hadn't really thought of it in those terms. Um, I think to me, it's, it's about what we're consuming and how we're consuming, you know, whether we're consuming fake news, whether we're consuming, you know, fear, whether we're consuming uh, high-end purses that actually, you know, or, or things that enslave other people to make them right. I mean, there's, there's so many layers to that. I mean, it's a very big question that you're asking, but I think it's just something to me, it's just more about if you're consuming, are you also sharing in equal measure? Right? So you can consume things that give people jobs and help people, but can you share them? I mean, it's that basic, you know, it's like that, you know, that old book, everything I need to know I learned in kindergarten. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so I've got two and you don't have any, I'm going to yeah. give you one. <laughs> I, and I remember it includes snacks and knowing how when we cross the street, whole hands and walk together. It, it, that's not the exact wording, but that's the meaning. It's the meaning and it's the deepest most sacred truth. I mean, yeah. you can look at, you can say, no, no, it's bigger than that. It's more convenient, but really it's kind of simple. It's deep, it's simple, it's difficult, it's complex. And obviously as we can see in our world, uh -huh. it's challenging, but you know, people, people change when they connect to someone and they see, you know, like for instance, I was in I used to be married and then I entered a relationship with a woman later in life. And, you know, there was some resistance to that and people I knew or family members who were, I mean, they were all great, but there was a little bit of like, Oh, what does this mean? You know? And then when they met my partner, I was like, Oh, okay, this is great. I see what this is. Like there's, there's no need for fear you know, when we, when we exchange one-to-one -one relationally, the fear drops. You know, when you go to your pharmacist and ask for what you need in a relational way, magic happens. You know, I think. Why, though, the fear in the first place? I mean, because someone is having a same-sex relationship, what the devil does it have to do with you? I just don't get it. I mean, it's not as though they really want a relationship with you, especially because of where you're coming from. I mean, what is this? Yeah. Why? And most importantly, why do other people give that hater the power to control the rest of us? Well, because that type of thinking is very often and historically what's been in power. And so it perpetuates itself, you know? So now you see as new elements come into government, like you were speaking before about a president and now who knows loss from the inside out, he is gonna approach things differently from that. And I think as more people get a seat at the table who haven't had a seat at the table, people of color, people of different background, everything, all these women. different- Women, women, just women alone even, women you know, black women, brown women. I mean, it goes on and on. But as that starts to happen, I think as more people get a seat at the table who have different experiences and different values on what matters, we're going to see things start to change. But it's, it's a process. It's not ha it doesn't happen overnight. And yet, 
it does quantumly shift in moments, you know, and, and I think this COVID time has been an opening for a quantum shift. That's what I'm holding. Do you know Michael Beckwith? Yes, I do. And his yeah. work in California. He says something in a recent speech he gave. It, it was, I'm not going to chop it up here, but he just said, you have to be a representative of the world we can't see yet. You know, we have to be a representative of the world we can't see yet. I love that. I love that, right? It's like, ah. Oh. It just takes the pressure off and, and it takes the questions of why is it this way? Why is it that way? It's like, no, we have to see beyond what it is. And that's that's the promise of the, the you know, upheaval in the world, George Floyd's family. I mean, that's the promise of that whole thing. When we come back, more with our guest, Dr. Peggy Fitzsimmons, after the break. on the Janice Adams Show with my guest, Peggy Fitzsimmons. She holds a PhD in counseling psychology and is trained clinically in holistic and mind-body approaches. She's the author of the new book, Release, Create a Clutter-Free and Soul-Driven Life. Yeah. Let's talk about how you come to this understanding. What has your process been? I know that you've done wonderful work with Oprah Winfrey and her Super Soul Sunday series. You're now doing exciting work with Maria Shriver's Sunday paper and other things. How do you come to your own process of getting to this point? Yeah, that's a good question. I. I think what I said earlier, you know, I, I decided to go towards experiences. And one of the seminal experiences I had, I was in graduate school and I was studying to be a sports psychologist because I had played uh, basketball in college and sports were a big part of my life. So I was studying to become a sports psychologist and the field was new at the time, brand new. And um, so I started working with these athletes and they would come in and I was supposed to be helping them with their performance issues, you know, and they're talking to me about suicide and problems in the family and all these real deep problems. And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm not equipped for this. So I decided I need to get some experience um, out in the world. So I, I ended up working at a residential treatment center for adolescent sexual offenders. So these were kids who had molested other kids. Wow. So these are the lepers of society. And the guy I worked for, his name is Carl Schwartz, who's still a good friend of mine today. He saw beyond what they had done and wanted to help them make the return, you know, make the return journey, right? Uh, make amends, make it right, change their lives. So we would have these kids in residential treatment for two years at a time. And we work through all the different levels of things that have to be worked through. But that experience was important because my first impulse was like, no, thanks. I'm not interested. I don't want to be with them. <laughs> I was afraid. I was all kinds of things. But it helped me to see beyond and into the soul of people, you know, despite what they had done wrong. Um, so that was my first experience. And then I started working with kids in the wilderness who take kids out again, who had had difficulties. And then we'd bring them out for three week trips and you know that's a that's a way that cultures have dealt with people who have transgressed or had issues right you bring them out for the vision quest they return back to to share with the community what they've what learned what do they do when when you take them out into the wilderness um, well we would do an, a three week expedition style moving every day um, so we're hiking where kids are responsible for cooking and taking care of themselves which was you know, skills they needed to learn. We did group therapy, individual therapy. Um, it was just powerful experiences of nature and being in, in the vastness of things. And, and kids, at every trip, one kid would, every kid at some point would say, wow, I can feel it. It's not all about me and this smallness of my life. Like they'd be out on some trail or on the top of a mountain, you know, but they would get that sense and they would 
clear their hearts and their minds of secrets and all the things that were holding them back, their clutter, so to speak. Yeah. And we were part of that, you know, so that was a huge experience. And then, then the next experience was I, a friend said, Oh, you should go live at Omega. And I said, well, what is it? And they said, don't worry, it'll be a good place for you. <laughs> so I was recently divorced and I was working in private practice and I knew I needed something different. And so I applied to Omega and decided to go there and make 50 bucks a week you know, at the height of my career, right? I was late thirties, early forties at that time. And everyone went crazy. What are you going to go there and do that? You know, it's a holistic learning center. So people were worried. I was going to, I don't know what, <laughs> but they were worried, but I chose that experience. Holistic learning center. What does that mean? The Omega Institute is the nation's largest holistic learning center, which means that it's a place where all the teachers across all kinds of disciplines, psychology, spirituality, art, yoga, meditation, um, social justice, environmental, all kinds of topic areas, but all the top teachers in their fields come to that place and offer workshops and retreats to the guests that come. And so I was part of the staff at Omega, holding the infrastructure of the place for these people to come have transformative experiences, you know, to have experiences of waking up. That's what Omega is about. Yeah. So... And what was your awakening at Omega since you said you came there from, from a transitional point in your own life? Yeah, I think the big awakening at Omega was I was finally in a place that made sense to me. It was safe. It was, it was beautiful. It was integrated in nature. It was all these people working towards a similar thing in different ways, right? But they were looking to grow themselves, to touch into something real and connected. Um, and I learned about service there because that was our job, you know, was to learn how to be in service. And that could be something as simple as helping someone find the nearest bathroom to helping someone who is having a, a, you know, a traumatic experience based on something they were learning or, you know, something coming up for them, right, in these workshops. And there's just a lot happening for people at many levels. And you know, you've, you've spent time there. I have valued time at Omega, Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York, and I'll put a link to it on the yeah. website. On, Please on do. This page. I, I absolutely will. <laughs> yeah, it, it really, it, Omega changed my life. It expanded my understanding about so many different topics I didn't know about. And, and it just gave me an experience of love. And it was like living in a house of mirrors that was reflecting your better self. Mm. Yeah. And people would say to me, when are you going to get back to the real world? When are you going to leave Omega and come back to the real world? Because I was there for four years, seven months a year. And to me, it was like the Michael Beckwith quote. It's like, no, this is a representation of what the world can be. You know, where everyone's welcome, everyone's learning, everyone's safe. Mm -hmm. you know? so, You're there seven months a year, you say. So the other five months, what is your culture shock in each as you go? <laughs> well, the seven months was, okay, well, how can I earn a hundred bucks a few days a week so I can go back to Omega? So during <laughs> time I started I did all kinds of traveling I went I went to India I met a, a guy at Omega who's a Holocaust survivor and he took me to Israel and we went around Israel together for three weeks just the entire country um, I lived in on St. Thomas because I in wanted the Virgin to Islands in the Virgin Islands um, so many so many things I worked on a boat as a as a deckhand, my dad was calling me Dr. Deckhand, you know, because <laughs> he had no and he had no idea why I was making these choices because they were against the cultural choices, right? You build up your retirement account, you do your work. And you and, are Dr. Fitzsimmons. I am Dr. Fitzsimmons. What are you doing, you know, out on a boat in in Turks and Caicos, right? And I, I don't know what I was doing, but I was just gathering experiences. I was gathering engagement with all kinds of different people. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of how my life's been. And then when I was at Omega, this woman showed up who ended up becoming my partner for six years. Uh, her name is Libby. She was Oprah Winfrey's executive assistant. 
So now all of a sudden through her, I'm entering that world. I didn't have a television background or anything, but uh -huh. Oprah, Oprah and I met and we connected deeply and I lived with her at her house for a year and a half in Chicago as the Oprah show was ending and the Oprah network was beginning in California. And I don't know what I was doing there, but I was there, you know, and I just kept showing up. And what so, was it like to be there? Oh, it was fascinating. You know, it was, it was, it was a little bit of everything. It was the thing that was so amazing to me about it was, well, one, you know, Oprah's just a lovely human being, you know, who's always searching, always searching. And so we were able to spend a lot of time talking about things like we're talking about. And I got to be involved in projects that were bringing that forth into the world, like Super Soul Sunday, um, which is now called Super Soul. Um, and I remember saying, you know, this is about you using your voice to bring new voices to the world. And that's what we were doing at the time. And, um, but what was fascinating was the ability to create, you know, because you could say something and there was this team of people that could do, 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 and make it happen, <laughs> you know, and there was so much um, accessibility, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's what's missing in, in the world, you know, that like we were saying before, many people don't have a seat at the table that they can create and collaborate and bring their smarts to the world and, and their experience. So I saw that quite clearly in her orbit. Peggy, we only have a few minutes left. I can't believe how fast this interview has scurried by. Two questions. First, tell us about how you came to define clutter as the space that you wanted to talk about. And secondly, what's next? And what are we going to talk to you about next time? <laughs> <laughs> Good questions. I think, you know, I've always worked with people and I started working with people in their homes to deal with clutter um, because I'm a Virgo but anyway, and I like organization. And I was always the friend that we'd, I'd come over and say, oh, do you want to clean out the garage? You know, I just always enjoyed that. So I just said, oh, I could kind of make a career out of doing this and be with people in that way. And so when I was with people with their physical clutter, obviously all the other aspects would reveal themselves, all the other types of clutter. So it was very deep, intimate, sacred work. And I've loved doing that work. And that's how I decided to write the book based on my experiences. And as I wrote it, I realized, wait, this is actually bigger than a clutter book. It's really about the soul and the ego. And so I hope people will read the book just to get to know the different aspects of themselves better. So we can all walk a little more securely as souls and a little more woke as souls. You know, mm -hmm. I think that's the goal here to, to shift the consciousness of this world. Of course, when we speak, we like to speak in terms of the nation, the country, the society, but what it is, is 330 million souls. And Absolutely. Individuals. And as they say, you know, world peace begins with your turn signal, right? So <laughs> it's like you got to wow. go take it all the way home and then bring it all the way forth. You know, wow. it's micro never, and macro. Yeah, I'd never heard that. So, Piggy, what's next for you? Well, hopefully someday I'll be back on this talking about a, a vision I'm trying to bring to the ground right now about end of life care. And, and kind of transforming that. So I'm, I'm working to um, find a way to create something that would weave together my life of being with people in transition and being in the wilderness and nature and living in community. So I am, I'm, I'm working on that creation right now and I will, I will get back to you, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm using any help I can get from ancestors and people on the ground here and uh, just trying to, to find my way because that's the next place I want to um, share my love. That's the next way I want to share my love with the world. Um, yeah. Peggy Fitzsimmons, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. This has been a real pleasure. Thank you, Janice. 
My thanks to Peggy Fitzsimmons and to you for joining us on the show today. For the podcast, more about the show, links to Peggy's book, Release, the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York, Maria Shriver's Sunday Paper, Dr. Michael Beckwith, founder and spiritual director of the Agape International Spiritual Center in Los Angeles, and Oprah Winfrey's Super Soul. Visit my website, JanusAdams.com In cooperation with WJFF Radio Catskill Post-production Jason Dole This show is a production of Janice Adams LLC All rights reserved